everyone, and thanks for joining us once again on a journey through Stock Aiken Waterman. I'm Gavin Scott, and this is another episode dedicated to a landmark single in the Saw story. Isn't that right, Matthew Denby? Yeah, this total banger was the commercial pop breakthrough of a performer previously steeped in the dance club world, which, as listeners of this podcast know, is where Stock Aiken and Waterman originally came from as well. So did this record represent the start of a whole new era of dance floor glory? Let's find out. It was a great time for Saw to be connecting with what and who was going on in the clubs. We've talked before about the significant shift in music as 1989 became 1990. And sometimes a change of decade doesn't really amount to much. Life and music just kind of carry on as normal. But as we went from the 80s into the 90s, there was a noticeable move away from many of the things that had been successful in the late 80s. Club music was more essential than ever, and new sounds and new types of artists were winning over record buyers. And Stockhaken Waterman were incredibly aware of that. And I couldn't be more thrilled. This track was right on time for Saw, who teamed up with American singer and club favourite Lonnie Gordon for a very contemporary record, tapping right into one of the biggest flavours of the moment. Let's have a listen to Lonnie's breakthrough record, Happening All Over Again. Such a good song. But before we get to happen all over again, let's retrace the path that led Lonnie Gordon to work with Stock Aiken Waterman. And that's a story that involves why she left her life in New York, where she was working as a singer, to move to the UK in the mid 80s. Yeah, Lonnie had been gigging in Bermuda when she met a British journalist who swept her off her feet. They got married and she ended up moving to Plymouth to be with him in the mid-80s. Now, she didn't immediately start working as a singer in her new home and she focused instead on being a mum to her young daughter, Ricky. But before too long, Lonnie started gaining gigs, providing vocals for dance tracks like this one. That was All Work and No Play by Offshore from 1988, which was produced by Ian Levine. Lonnie also contributed vocals to a track called Cinco de Mayo by Tropical Beat around this same time. And while she wasn't exactly becoming a household name, Lonnie was starting to make some inroads. She definitely was getting known in certain circles for that powerful voice. Let's hear her talk about that early work she did in the UK. How easy was it for you to break into the industry in the UK? Well, since I was coming from New York and I was going to England, it it felt to me like I felt freer. I felt more like I can attack the music business. You know, I could I felt like that black singer. You know what I mean? I felt like her at that time when I was recording, I was like I had that hunger going on. You know what I mean? That excitement for music. That energy, that energy was was out. I wanted to sing. In, in New York, I did clubs and, you know, I was with a group called Nightjar and stuff like that. But 
England was a whole new town to me, a whole new place to express artistry. I, you know, I, I was so naive back then with the music business. I was, it was all about the talent to me. It was all about singing. It was all about performing. And now I understand why they call it music business, because there's a business side to it. And in my career, I did a lot of work, but uh, I didn't get paid for a lot of stuff. Do you know what I mean? I did. Uh, and and that, that's not, that was my fault because I didn't know. It's not like, you know, I knew. If I knew, I would have did something about it, but I didn't know. Another short-term gig saw Lonnie team up with producers Mark Andrews, Ian Terry, and Rod Warren on a project called Quartz Lock. And she added her distinctive vocals on two tracks, No Regrets, which also had input from Ian Levine and some musical similarities to the Offshore song, and a track called Love Eviction, which was a double A side with Looking for Someone to Love Tonight. Now, these songs were an important step in Lonnie's career. Once again, they weren't commercial hits in 1988, but they received significant club play and her performance style started to gain even more attention. Yes, this was when Lonnie really started to get noticed in the club world with some pretty strong material. The track Love Eviction in particular really has become something of a minor classic and for good reason. It's a brilliant example of that genre of late 80s, early 90s house-infused club music with Lonnie's powerful vocal cords and her personality really driving it along. You're definitely getting a strong sense of who Lonnie is here. No Regrets also made a bit of a mark. That one ended up getting covered by Nolene from Sylvania Waters. Hmm. But let's have a listen to Lonnie instead. was the original 1988 versions of No Regrets and Love Eviction by Quartz Lock. Now, a 1995 reworking of Love Eviction would reach the UK Top 40, and Lonnie even received a featuring credit, something she didn't always receive in those early years, along with some other things that she didn't receive. Let's hear from Lonnie now about the Quartz Lock tracks. Quartz Lock, like I, I was Quartz Lock. They didn't use my name. In the beginning, you know, it was like it was like a job with I was working with Mark Andrews and I'll never forget. He came to my flat in um, London and he played me this beat and he said it was a song called No Regrets. And I never heard the song before, never heard it, but I liked Mark and it just was a beat. And he gave me the track and uh, I'll never forget when we did No Regrets. We did No Regrets in about an hour, you know, and I rehearsed No Regrets a lot by myself. So when time when I got into the studio, I knew what I was doing and No Regrets really kicked it off. You know, I was doing little gigs around London, doing a lot of cover songs and and a lot of gay clubs. You know, my I, I did some bingo places. I, I didn't know anything about England and 
I did all kinds of things. And then uh, when when I started doing gay clubs like Evan and uh, I, I end up with this huge gay following and the following were they were men. They weren't like women. They were men that was following. And then I did a song called Love Eviction. And when I did Love Eviction, I was I was in the studio with these guys. Mark was there. And they started throwing me lines out like, well, 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 y- you finally got here. What happened? Your bit of trash kicked you out and you thought you'd come running back to me. Well, let me tell you, honey, you know, they kept coming into the studio and, you know, that's how the words got into Love Addiction. It was like that. And it was an aggressive kind of song because in the song, my man was beating me up and I had enough. I couldn't take any more of it. I'm like, you can. You know, I'm strong now, you know, so uh, that song took off. Lonnie got her first charting record by supplying vocals for I've Got Your Pleasure Control by Simon Harris. That song reached number 60 in the UK and 23 on the US dance charts. Let's hear that one. I did a track with Simon Harris. I got your pleasure control. And that seemed like it flew. And I did, it was my first TV show was with Simon Harris. I got your pleasure control. And I'll never forget seeing me on TV thinking, oh, I'm so fat, I need to lose weight. That song actually charted and, and got some traction. And so did it feel like, you know, you'd been doing all these gigs and all these different tracks with here, there and the other, but did it start to feel like you had momentum? Uh, the journey of working with these characters in my life, it was always a pleasure because we were all creative. It wasn't, we didn't get into like money or anything. It was really a creative moment. So everybody being creative, something happened from it. Okay, while Lonnie was slowly but surely carving out a niche for herself on the British club scene, she had one ambition, to work with Stock Aitken Waterman. Yeah, when Lonnie first arrived in the UK, she was a big viewer of Top of the Pops, and in 1984, one band in particular really caught her eye. Like so many people we've spoken to, she was pretty smitten with Saw's first number one act. She told Vada magazine, I came over here and the first band I saw was Dead or Alive and I really dug them a lot. I found out that Stock, Aitken and Waterman had done that song for them, so I chased them up, unquote. Lonnie explained to Fab magazine that when she and her husband moved to London for his journalism career, she began her long campaign to work with Saw. Quote, I had this dream, this recurring dream, and my husband was very into my career. We moved to London and I wanted to find some way to work with Stock Aitken and Waterman. They were busy at that time doing Dead or Alive and everything was happening for them. And that dream didn't go away. As time went on, another Saw act really convinced Lonnie she just had to work with the Hit Factory. Let's hear from her about that. I started doing research of like Stock Aitken and Waterman. They were like, all in the charts and i this would be the first time i had chance to dream you know i say i want those to be my producers i want them to produce me didn't know them or anything like that i had met mel and kim at a, a club it was i don't know a strip joint or something like that in england and 
two weeks later, I saw him on top of the pops. And I was like, those are the girls that I met. Lonnie did her homework. She specifically targeted Melanchim's label, Supreme Records, hoping to get a deal that would bring her one step closer to Saw. And it was a move that would eventually pay off for her. When we spoke to former Supreme Records MD, Nick East, way back for our Melanchim episodes, we also asked him about how Lonnie ended up on the label. So let's hear from him now about that, and then we'll go back to Lonnie. I mean, she just showed up at my office in Camden Town. I said, you got to sign me. Like I've seen all this Mel and Kim and Princess and anyway, long story short, she just kept showing up. She just found out where we were and then she just started singing one day in the office. I'm like, wow, okay, better uh, sign her. <laughs> but yeah, literally, she just badgered me to death. Just kept showing up and um, yeah, she was a phenomenal artist, phenomenal artist, incredible performer, incredible voice, amazing drive and should have been a lot more successful. When I spoke to Nick East, he told me that you turned up at the Supreme offices and kind of wouldn't take no for an answer. Is that your memory? That's true. That's true. And you sang for him in the office. That's true. And was that because you knew that was the label, you know, because you knew Mel and Kim and they were on Supreme? Was that because, like, right, I want to be on that label as well because they're doing good things? Uh, I was tracking down Stockake and Waterman and Stockake and Waterman had Mel and Kim. That's how I knew about Mel and Kim, not Supreme Records. But when I found out they were on, on this company called Supreme Records, I was after Supreme Records. And uh, I remember they, I played Love Eviction and all that. And they, they, at the time, they said that I wasn't the right time yet. Uh, but I was always knocking on their door. I was always calling. Mel and Kim was like storming the charts and I always was like, you know, what about me, Nick? I liked Nick a lot. I really liked Nick. I think I had a crush on him. <laughs> I think I had a little crush on Nick. Yes, I was always flirting with him and he was always pushing me away. But we traveled a lot together, me and Nick. He was really supportive. Uh, when me and him separated, that did a lot to me because when he was with me, I felt whole. When we had to separate, it wasn't the same anymore. You know, I, I, I followed mostly all his leads, like, Lonnie, you should sing this. It was a really great, Supreme Records at the time was a great company that I had emerged with because it seemed like it was right. You know, everything was right about it. But the Supreme Records connection wasn't an immediate ticket for working with Saw. The label hadn't worked with the producers since the last Mel and Kim record, That's the Way It Is, which came out back in February of 88. Indeed, there'd been a bit of a dry patch for the company with not much activity and no major hits to their credit in the meantime. Lonnie didn't immediately work with Saw after signing with Supreme. Instead, she recorded a cover of this song. That was First Choices, 1977 original of Let No Man Put Asunder. Lonnie took the disco tune and turned it into a house anthem, complete with powerhouse vocals. Let's take a listen. (laughs) 
Yeah, that was so of that moment, a really effective update. There's a bit of a diva energy here, and it's a shame this track didn't get the same kind of commercial action that she did. It's Not Over seemed like a really great choice for Lonnie's supreme debut, and yeah, a diva is a really good call. I also thought it was in line with tracks from around that time by Kim Mazel and Joe Manda. Real soulful vocals with a big house backing. But unfortunately for Lonnie, It's Not Over only reached number 91 on the UK chart. She also recorded another track in a similar vein called Right Before My Eyes, but that didn't receive an official release. Let's hear a bit of Right Before My Eyes, then we'll hear Lonnie talking about her early music with Supreme Records. not over we did that was my first video and uh it didn't climb the charts and i was really disappointed but happening all over again came right after that with it's not over how did that come together how was that picked as as your debut single nick picked the song out really he was saying lonnie this would be good for you and i remember i did the talking in it he was like this is great this is great and i had to write another verse and um, we were all so pumped up and it, it, everybody was so excited. You know, the days were wonderful. You know, the excitement was definitely on. I did right before my eyes. I think it, at that time people were raving and it went really down great in raves. I haven't listened to that song in ages, ages. Despite the lack of mainstream success for Lonnie's guest appearances and solo work, she had gained the attention of Pete Waterman. After all, she had appeared on The Hitman and Her a couple of times by this point, and obviously her label boss, Nick East, had a long-standing relationship with PWL through Supreme Artists Princess, The Three Degrees, and Melon Kim. And before that, he worked at Proto Records, so they went way back. So whether it was Nick calling in a favour from an old friend or Lonnie's talent, probably a combination of both, Lonnie got her wish. Right, Lonnie said it was the success of I've Got Your Pleasure Control that won her an audience with Saw. But there were already sceptical rumblings among some in the club crowd who wondered if she was sacrificing the underground cred she'd built by going to PWL. Lonnie was asked in one 1990 interview if she was compromising herself by working with the Hit Factory. And she had this to say. No, I don't think so. I'm still Lonnie Gordon. As far as I look at it, they're just producers. They write and they call themselves the Hit Factory. They're a production company that have loads of songs, and I've met so many people who don't have any songs. I'm Lonnie Gordon, and I've always had a sound, and my vocal quality is never going to change. It's Not Over was Lonnie Gordon, and Happening All Over Again is Lonnie Gordon. Although Lonnie didn't have any hits under her belt at this stage, she wasn't starting from scratch in the way some of Saw's more recent artists had been. This was a situation like that of, say, Hazel Dean or Sunita, singers with an established style that Saw took and worked with. They weren't trying to mould Lonnie into the PWL sound. If anything, the reverse was true. Well, Phil Harding wrote in his book, PWL from the Factory Floor, that Lonnie was Nick East's big hope at the time, and he was thrilled that Saw recognised the potential for her to cross over. Quote, Nick had obviously lost Princess and Mel and Kim and hadn't really had much success commercially for some time. Then he signed Lonnie Gordon and brought her to Pete Waterman with a blank page for Saw to do whatever they felt would suit her. 
I guess on meeting her and hearing Lonnie's voice, there was really only one direction to go, an up-tempo, exciting record with Saw in the vein of Right on Time. That was the plot, and to put it very simply in Pete Waterman terms, we aimed for the bullseye and hit it straight on. And bang, another new PWL artist was in the charts, unquote. Let's hear more from Lonnie now about going to work with Saw. Nick East wanted me to meet Pete Waterman, and it was at a, uh, a meal, a dinner or something that we were having. And I went with him and a woman named Kate Farmer. So I went with them and I would meet uh, Pete Waterman. And before I knew it, I was working with Pete Waterman. And was that Nick saying to Pete, come on, give us a Stock Aiken Waterman song? I don't, I don't really know. I know that Pete Waterman and Nick had a really special kind of relationship. They were like buddies back then. You know, uh, everybody was coming out of the same pool of people. You know, they were all meshed together. You know, you know I, I, I'm, I'm sure Nick East had a relationship before I even got on the scene with uh, Pete Waterman. Back then, Stockake and Waterman were... They were geniuses. They just were, at that era of their time, anything they touched turned to gold. You know, in my career, it was an honor to work with them because they were professional. I would be with a professional team of people that did their craft really well. Which brings us to that bullseye happening all over again. Yes, another stormer from Lonnie, with all the character and energy of her better early work. And like so many of those songs, this was another tale of no good lovers and relationship drama. And it captures the moment perfectly with its nods to the big floor fillers of the time. I couldn't have been more pleased when this record came out, and I rushed straight out to buy it right away. It was exactly where I was going in my personal tastes in early 1990, and where I really wanted Saw to be. Agreed. I also jumped on this one. By this stage, thanks to overseas magazines, and yes, that British pen friend of mine, I was very well informed about what Saw were up to, much more so than in the 80s. So I was interested in this as a matter of course, but happening all over again was a great way to start 1990. It was as good as anything Saw had put out, while it still sounded new and exciting. It was a fresh twist on a sound I'd come to love the past few years. Well, this song is so loved, I guess it shouldn't really come as any surprise that such a legendary record has collected plenty of myths and stories around its making as the years go by. And whether it's because Happening All Over Again is a grade A saw track, or because Lonnie's superior soulful vocals put her in the same class as a singer like Donna Summer, once again, probably a combination of both those things, there has always been one persistent rumour about Happening All Over Again that it was intended for a potential second album with Donna Summer, and when that didn't eventuate, it was offered to Lonnie Gordon. That rumour will probably never die, and there's good reason for that. We could all imagine Donna singing this song and doing an amazing job with it. Not that Lonnie was any slouch. This rumour has been presented as fact in the media many, many times, and Phil Harding acknowledges in his book that the story even did the rounds at PWL. Lonnie herself told Fab Magazine in 1996 that the song was, quote, not meant for me, adding, it was meant for Donna Summer. She had a falling out with Saw and they were looking for a singer. I wonder if Lonnie knew that or if she was just saying that because she'd heard the rumours too. But anyway, if anyone was going to be able to give us a straight answer on that rumour, it's Mike Stock. Here he is to put it to bed once and for all. 
You've probably answered this a million times, but for the record, for our podcast, what's happening all over again written with Donna Summer in mind? No, no. Because Lonnie Gordon's much more uh, in the club-orientated vein of what was going around at the time. I'm sitting. I can remember sitting at the piano writing it. I mean, this is long after Lon- uh, Donna's gone, you know. Uh, I couldn't get the bloody chorus to work. Um, I could hear Matt. Matt was sitting in the other room watching the telly, and I'm going, da, 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 da. I couldn't work out how to fix it and finish it. And Matt said, oh, for fuck's sake, Mike. Came over to the piano and said, look, just do that. I can remember that's one occasion, which, which is why I'm only saying this to you, because that song was not written with Donna in mind at all, but entirely with Lonnie, because I thought she could deliver that. Thanks, Mike. And it's worth noting that Nick East also said Happening All Over Again was written specifically for Lonnie, but that possibly other songs on the album may have been earmarked for Donna. But as we know, Saw didn't tend to write songs until they were required, and so I don't know how likely it is that they sat around putting songs together just in case Donna returned to PWL. And when that didn't happen, they started dishing them out to other artists. From what we've heard, that's not how they operated. Complicating matters is the fact that Hazel Dean has indicated in the past that she believes she was originally a frontrunner to record this track. But in her recollection of events, she was edged out as a result of Supreme Records lobbying successfully on Lonnie's behalf. Whatever really happened here, we are going to see the rivalry over saw tracks becoming an ongoing feature of Lonnie and Hazel's stories. I find it hard to imagine anyone else performing this song, and we'll talk about the cover versions later on. Happening All Over Again is a lot edgier than the Another Place and Time tunes, and not just in terms of production. Given what we know about Donna Summer's propensity to turn down or adjust lyrics that didn't align with her worldview, more on that when we get to Breakaway, I don't see her going for a song as negative as Happening All Over Again. Even I Don't Want to Get Hurt had veered a little too close to heartbreak. Donna preferred sentiments like, this time I know it's for real, love's about to change my heart, when love takes over you, all very loved up and romantic. Happening All Over Again is tailor-made for Lonnie and really picks up from songs like Love Eviction and It's Not Over. Lonnie is calling her man out. Yes, here we see Lonnie being true to her prediction about not being swamped by the sore sound. She really did manage to retain her personality and keep some of her trademark moves on that record. It all reminds me a bit of how Princess got to use some of her own creativity and some of her own ad-libs on Say I'm Your Number One. There's definitely something about those supreme artists bringing out the best in the boys. Mike Stock was, when I went to the studio to do the album, Mike Stock was genius. He sang every note to me, background. He he had me in and out of the studio. This, this was, he, he knew exactly what he wanted and how he wanted it done. And uh, that my vocals was there. It suited where they were going. So with Mike, were you happy with that? Because you would have worked with a few producers by then. Were you happy with that style of, here, Lonnie, sing it like this? Oh, yes. Because he was such, Mike Stock was, he was so into his craft. He was such a genius. He knew vocals. He knew how to explain it to you. He knew how to get it from you. You know, just things that he said in the studio, you knew exactly what he was saying and what he wanted. And uh, it was a pleasure working with Mike. You know, I'll, I'll never forget Mike in my career because he was, you know, happening all over again in the tracks. 
Mike Stock, Aiken, they were they just made an amazing team. And you know, uh Pete Waterman would listen to it and if it was the right, what he thought it was right, it was going. You know, and um what can I say? Uh I was so blessed to work with Stock Aiken Waterman. You know, and I got spoiled working with Stock Aiken Waterman the way they work. My journey with Stock Aiken Waterman was amazing. As for Mike Stock, he was also happy working with an artist of Lonnie's caliber. Here he is talking about recording with another talented singer after a few artists who were more pop star than vocalist. Was it refreshing to work with someone like Lonnie after Kako and Big Fun? Well, you know, um, Lonnie's got a voice that not necessarily everybody likes. It's quite bold, isn't it? But I love she's a performer, a performer behind the mic. And someone like Kako or Mark of Big Spot, they're not performers behind the mic. They're very timid. Donna acted every song. Lonnie acted it, acted it behind the mic with hand gestures and big arms and eyes and teeth, you know. She acted it all. Uh, and that's what you need. McCartney does that. Cliff Richard does that. The best singers get into the part quickly, deliver it. It's not just getting the notes in the right order. <laughs> it's right. That's right. I can't believe he remembers all that. Yeah, I was acting it out. I was, I was doing my little thing. Yes, yes, that was, it was classic. It was just a classic moment. It just, it should have been video. It's always got to be a thrill working with a top class singer or someone with a lot of vocal power, even if, as Mike seems to suggest, it can sometimes get a bit in your face. I think this is an example of a powerhouse singer really pushing back on the producers and influencing their creativity. One thing that Lonnie needed no guidance from Mike Stock on was the ad-libs and that spoken word intro, which also harked back to her earlier club tracks. Whose idea was that? And was that because you had done that spoken thing on a few other tracks? I was joking. I was joking and they used it. It was a lot of stuff that I was doing. They wanted me ad lib or do this or that. And when I sang, you know, they would say, okay, you get, that's great. And they would move on to the next. And the time that I heard happening all over again, you know, it was pieces taken out of where I was joking, laughing and, you know, and they, they took what they do best is hearing stuff for what it is. Because I was performing a lot. I was I was talking to audiences and stuff like that. And um, all that just came really natural. It wasn't something that we wrote or you should say this. It, it wasn't that. And a lot of ad libs that I would do, they, it wasn't like something you told me to do. I would automatically ad lib. I remember when I was starting to sing young, when I was younger, I started at eight or something, but I remember I couldn't ad lib. I remember that it was really hard for me to ad lib and I worked at it. I worked at it. And um, when I got the opportunity or just keep singing on stage, when you're on stage, you got to stop and say something to people. They don't know who you are. You have to make, you know, that's, that's the hard thing. If you can make an audience clap for you and they don't know who you are. That intro is like a Lonnie Gordon fingerprint. Her established fan base, who loved her underground club hits, would have recognised that immediately. And I love that she felt free enough in the studio to be able to bring that to the table. 
So often with Saw, we hear of artists singing line by line, and that process can seem kind of sterile. But Lonnie clearly pushed right through it all. And I don't mind a bit of spoken word commentary in songs, and that probably harks back to my love for the Grease soundtrack, which I talked about last episode, and the song It's Raining on Prom Night. It can be cheesy in the wrong hands, but there is nothing cheesy about Lonnie Gordon and her spoken word bits. Let's hear now from Julian Gingell of Jules and Stone and The Alias, who was an assistant engineer on the Lonnie single, about the spoken word section. Happening All Over Again was a ride on time, kind of. That was done at the time when ride on time was big. It didn't end up there, but originally that was kind of the direction to go in. And they ended up making it much kind of tougher and, and housier. But originally, the original kind of mixes on, of Happening All Over Again was, were very black box-esque. And just uh, Phil came in and kind of whacked a, a club loop on it. And um, that, that is one of my favourite PWL records. So I was obsessed with it. And Lonnie Gordon, I mean, that talk about working with people in the studio. I mean, the ad-lib queen, Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, all the talking on the records. I mean, promise, I promise you, this that is just like three seconds of half an hour we have. Because <laughs> with Lonnie, it comes to the end of the session. And, okay, let's do some ad-libs, okay? And she would just talk for like, 10 minutes over the over the track just like these brilliant pieces of like you know talking so obviously you couldn't use all of it so but it was just a wealth of stuff I mean she was living her fantasy she really she was just I mean there are probably three takes full of her completely like you know going over happening the happening all over again back in track just talking coming up with all these scenarios you better believe my man it's just great she was uh she was brilliant at it that harked back a little bit to Mel and Kim, where they would take the snippets of them chattering in the studio and, and work them into the song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got a feeling with the Mel and Kim stuff, though, it was it was kind of outtakes. It was just like between, you, you know, the talking, it was just stuff that they uh, nabbed while they were probably, you know, waiting for the mic to get set up or, or between takes or something like that. But a lot, Lonnie's was kind of, you know, sung over the... Uh, the backing track, you know, and many, many, many takes of ad libs. And she, oh, she was, I mean, she just set her off and she was, she was just filled the track up with ad libs. Something that's just really kind of ad libs aren't their forte, you know, and it's, it's hard to kind of, oh, I'm not sure what to do. But I mean, Lonnie was just, <laughs> just amazing. Right. Fascinating to hear confirmation of just how black box esque this track was in its earlier incarnations, and that the guys gave Lonnie formal time at the end of her session to do those ad libs. So they clearly saw the potential of what she was doing there. Matt, can you imagine a whole spoken word version of Happening All Over Again? <laughs> Given the number of mixes there were of this song, what would one more have been? Now, in terms of the ride on time factor, that was probably most obvious from this vocal of Lonnie's. Right, well, Black Box wasn't exactly the flash in the pan you might have expected during all the drama over Right on Time and that sampling scandal. They went on to have a bunch of hits as well as a very successful album, Dreamland, and Italo House continued to explode right around the world. Let's have a listen to some of the more memorable hits from that whole Italo explosion.
Those tracks we heard came from Production House's Groove Groove Melody, who, as well as being behind Black Box, gave us Starlight's Numero Uno and Grand Piano by Mixmaster. And Media Records, home of the prolific Gianfranco Bortolotti's Capella, we heard Helium Halib, and 49ers, Touch Me. They were really shaking up not just the dance scene, but the pop charts as well. Yeah, I couldn't get enough of this kind of stuff at the time. I bought a bunch of those records. I was starting to care a lot less about pop stars and more about what made great dance records. And this was definitely where dance music was going in the early 90s, with Saw taking full notice. Let's have a listen to their first attempt to channel that sound in the original mix of Happening All Over Again. As Julian mentioned, it was Phil Harding who transformed that initial mix into the Hip House mix, which featured an early appearance of what would become the frequently used, woo, yeah, loop. Right, always a big cheerleader for Saw taking their cues from the dance floor. Phil Harding said this record was hugely popular among the staff. Quote, this record came about at just the right time for PWL in terms of the whole building needing a bit of an inspirational lift and needing a fresh artist and record to show people that we were still capable of finding new artists, writing great songs, doing great productions and mixes, and still making great records that DJs, the media, and the public all liked and got excited about. Saw did a great job on all points above, wrote a great inspirational song, got a great performance out of the singer with the current groove and feel that was bang on for the time, unquote. Writing about the influences that drove the record, Phil noted in his book that it, quote, starts with a ton of hip-hop style drum loops, all sped up to meet this high-tempo stormer of a track. Hence the name Hip House was born to PWL, and that's what we named the mixes, unquote. In terms of those mixes, he wrote, there was very little that I could do or add when the record came downstairs to the bunker studio for me to mix. Just the instructions from Pete Waterman to do a killer 12-inch that we could then cut down to a 7-inch radio mix. The two killer things about the record are the vocal performance and the antics from the stunning voice of Lonnie and the great song and melodies that Saw had constructed in what by now they were classically calling Italian-style melodies. Saw had been using those for some time, but the style is very prominent on this record. Classically, the song also features key changes throughout, which was a sore songwriting trait that they had practiced for some years of Pete Waterman continually coming in and asking for more of a lift into the chorus emotionally. Mike Stock and Matt Aiken would always wonderfully disguise this going into the chorus, unquote. Too right, Phil. Phil and Ian Kerno went all out with the Italo House references on another mix they did, appropriately enough called the Italiano mix, with some 49ers style piano and more vocal licks from Lonnie. Let's take a listen. (laughs) 
So what did Lonnie think of all these mixes and the various ways in which Happening All Over Again was transformed? Let's find out. I didn't get involved with Stockcake and Waterman and their decision as to what was a hit and a mix because they um, were so successful with their craft that I felt they knew much more than me to pick what they thought was the hit. So I honestly stayed out of the arena when it came to Nick East and Pete Waterman, Stock Aiken Waterman. I stayed out of the mix with it. When they said, this is what we're using, that was what it was. I stayed out of the mix with all all the mixes and stuff that people want. I, I just sang, sang as well as I could and heard finished products. That's what I did. I heard finished products. Well, the song was a big success on the charts, reaching four in the UK, three in Ireland, eight in Finland, 14 in Sweden, and 33 here in Australia. Saw's last ever top 40 here with a non-Kylie Minogue single. And like This Time I Know It's For Real, Happening All Over Again took its sweet time to take off here in Australia. It was released at the end of April 1990 and took two months to even make the top 100, which it slowly climbed, finally cracking the top 50 in late July. Although that was disappointing, the European success of the song kept Lonnie rather busy. I remember uh, when I was at Nick East's house, me and my husband, because I was married then, they knew where Happening All Over Again and the charts were going to be. But I didn't know. So, you know, the top 40, they, they start doing it from 40, 39. And then, you know, it got to 20 and I still wasn't, you know, but when they said four, I remember jumping up, breaking the lamp. Oh, it was just amazing. It was just, I was just so, so happy. I mean, that must have been a big change, having done all these club tracks to go and have a pop hit. How did that change things for you or or did it change things? I I was taking the next step in my life as an artist. I I was honestly, I had, you know, when I was in, in the States, I had a record deal with a group. But this was Lonnie Gordon taking that that step. It was all new for me. Everything was new for me. And at the same time that I was in England, Yeah, I went all over the place. I went to Paris, Rome. I was all over Europe. Singing a pop record, I loved it because it was, it had something to do with the texture of your voice. Because it was, well, I'm not going to say repetitious. It was um, sort of like the way they put together music and uh, their melody lines were, you know, after a while you'd be walking around thinking, I can be so lucky. (laughs) You know what I mean? You start walking around singing Kyla Minogue stuff and happening all over again happened to be an excellent song. But if you slow down happening all over again and listen to the lyrics, it's kind of sad. You know what I mean? It's kind of a sad song that turned happy, but, um, I'd have to say that uh, happening all over again took me to the next level musically. We'll hear more from Lonnie as we work our way through her next couple of singles. She has a lot to say about Beyond Your Wildest Dreams, If I Have to Stand Alone, and the album of the same name. But let's skip ahead to 1993 when she had moved on from Supreme and Happening All Over Again was reworked for her Bad Mood album.
that was a fairly faithful and respectful remix that kept all the best bits from the original, but gave it more of a contemporary sheen. That got to number one on the Billboard dance chart in 1993. Well done, Lonnie. Now that revamp was much better than the totally unnecessary and, if we're being honest, pretty weak remake by Coronation Street star Tracy Shaw, which was released in 1998, produced by Mike Stock and Matt Aitken. Can I just say, as well as being a flimsy version, the video for Tracy's remake is terrible as well. We'll delve more into Tracy's work with Mike and Matt. Spoiler alert, her other single was much better. When we reach the Love This era in, I don't know, five years' time? (laughs) Well, here in Australia, there was a much more successful remake when the Australian Idol supergroup, Young Divas, returned with another Saw cover after the mega success of their version of This Time I Know It's For Real. This one came out in November of 2006 and got to number nine on the Australian chart. In some ways, thank goodness for the Young Divas because they took two of Saw's best singles and finally made them top 10 hits here in Australia. Now, if you're at all interested in the Young Divas, be sure to check out the episodes of my other podcast, A Journey Through Aussie Pop, with Ricky Lee, one of the girl group's members. And she's enjoyed a lengthy solo career here, but there was a lot of drama in the Young Divas project and she talks all about it. Another Young Divas side point, after the runaway success of their cover of This Time I Know It's For Real, one of the guys behind the group emailed me to ask what else I thought they should record, and I may have suggested a few more saw tracks. Meanwhile, back to Lonnie, Happening All Over Again was a fantastic start to her relationship with Stock and Waterman, and yet another top five UK single for the hit factory. It was great to have another new talent taking Saw into the 1990s, but as we'll hear when we get to those follow-up singles, things took a turn after this. Yeah, and that's quite a story in itself, and I know a lot of fans have some pretty strong opinions about what happened next. It's certainly one of the great what-ifs of Saw's career. If the Lonnie Gordon project had gone a different way, I definitely think that would have radically changed the course of Saw's careers. Yes, I would agree with that, and I'm looking forward to getting to those next two songs. For the bonus episode for this episode, there's a bit of a tenuous link between what we've been talking about and what we're going to be doing in the bonus, but we've been promising a bonus ep about Dead or Alive's Youthquake album for ages, so it's time for us to deliver. And given You Spin Me Round had inspired Lonnie to seek out Saw, this felt like a suitable time to talk about the album that track came from. So we're going to take a look at the first of Dead or Alive's two Saw-produced albums in the bonus material. And as a special treat, we're going to be joined once again by Barry Stone from The Alias, who regular listeners will know 
is not only a big fan of Dead or Alive, but ended up working with them as well. And it's going to be great to hear his input on that album, as well as our own resident superfan, Matthew Demby. Yeah, look, it was a fantastic chat. Barry brought so much to the table, so much knowledge and passion and personal firsthand experience with Dead or Alive. One of my favorite conversations that we've had in the entire run of this podcast. So do take a listen to the bonus material. You won't regret it. And to listen to that, head to chartbeats.com.au slash saw where you can subscribe to listen to all the bonus material. And actually, now I come to think of it, Pete Burns and Lonnie Gordon have a, a little bit in common. They're both performers with big personalities and really distinctive voices who just nail a song. Absolutely. That's a good enough reason to do Dead or Alive as the bonus for the Lonnie episode, Gavin. Thank you for uh, helping me rationalise that, Matt. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your continued support by subscribing, but also on social media and all that kind of stuff. Come say hi. I'm at ChartbeatsAU on Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to chat to Matt directly, he's at Mr. Matt Demby on Twitter as well. Yeah, and I love hearing from you, so please do tweet me. And thanks again for everyone who's been posting great reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We read them, we love them, we appreciate the feedback. Thank you so much. Okay, everybody, see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.